Welcome to America's Commercial Real Estate Show, your source for market intel, forecasts, and strategies. Hello, I'm Michael Ball. Thank you for being with us. This segment is brought to you by my company, Bull Realty. For proven asset and occupancy solutions, visit bullrealty.com. Or you're welcome to reach out to me directly. My email is michael at bullrealty.com. Well, today we're going to talk about the office sector, and we've been talking about it a good bit. And I think there's good reason to uh, feedback from the audience is, hey, we kind of know what's going on in multifamily and industrial, and we kind of know the story in, in retail. And uh, uh, so, but office seems to be the, the question mark out there uh, with all this uh, work from home and work from anywhere, hybrid. Uh, so let's get an idea of what's happening in the investment side, lender side tenant side, please welcome my guest. It's Jim Costello, a senior VP with Real Capital Analytics. Jim, thank you for joining us, sir. Always glad to join you. Well, Jim, you guys do a great job of, of tracking the market really around the world. And so my first question to you is uh, cap rates. You know, what are you seeing trend-wise in office cap rates in the U.S.? Cap rates are down. You know, you know whether you are in a suburban office complex or in a CBD location in the United States, cap rates have been falling over the last year. You know, there's all this hand-wringing over what happens next with the use of space. But just given the investment market we're in with a lot of capital looking for some sort of home and some sort of yield, cap rates are, are just you know, heading down. For the U.S. overall, down about 20, per, 20 basis points year over year to the third quarter. For suburban office, down about 30 basis points. Wow. CBD, not down really. You know, it's, it's been pretty flat, but it was already in an incredibly low level at 5.5%. Uh, so you know, it's, it's just questionable. You know, how do you get a market average much lower than that? Yeah. And it makes sense to see some cap rate compression from a year ago. Here we are at the very end of 2021. Of course, at the end of 2020, office was in more question. But how do those cap rates compare to, say, 2019? I mean, compared to 2019, uh, at the end of 2019, uh, the, the, uh, the, the suburban cap rates were much higher, close to 6.97%. Uh, you know, we're at 65 Today, so well, you're down 50 basis points there. For CBD stuff, it's pretty much the same. And it's interesting at the end of 2019, before anybody was aware of what was going to hit us, investors were becoming cautious about CBD office investments. Even aside from this shock that we have gone through on the demand side, investors were worried because we had the Fed talking about tapering about uh, more restrictive monetary policy, finally ending some of the supports that were in place following the financial crisis. And there was talk about you know, interest rates going up, which would make the CapEx burden of something like a CBD office building more problematic for investors. So we're already starting to pull back. And while you know, some of the suburban uh, office cap rates were coming down, you know, the high CapEx buildings and the you know, CBD locations uh, the cap rate decline that was underway it kind of hit a flat line. So you know we're we're you know we're 
going through some stuff for CBD offices that aren't really forces that were because of COVID. They were things that happened just before COVID. And as we come out of it, some of those same forces are in play today. Yeah. And I want to get to talking about um, future uh, interest rates, uh, what you th- uh, think is going to happen there and maybe inflation uh, impacting that. But before we, we unpack that, I think some of my listeners and viewers might be surprised to hear the cap rate compression in the office world, uh, especially compared to 2019 to today, the end of 2021. What are some other factors impacting that? Um, is new supply uh, constraints of new supply yet impacting that? Is it all about the, the huge liquidity in the market? Uh, and, and, and also, you know, there's some question from some people in some camps about the future of office. Uh, you know, why would investors be, I guess, bullish if cap rates are compressing? Well, the, the issue around the cap rate compression, it's not happening everywhere. It's not really happening in the CBD office markets. And when you talk about CBD office markets in the United States, 40% of that roughly is Manhattan. So when you talk about suburban cap rate compression, most of that space is really in the secondary and tertiary markets in the United States. So to some extent, the talk around cap rate compression is really a story of, of some of these smaller markets you know, getting attention of investors, looking for yield, trying to pick up something in cities that have uh, fewer restrictions, a little bit more movement throughout uh, you know all the all the changes uh, and, and so you know you've got you've got uh, uh, markets with uh, you know a little better liquidity in places um, you know like Austin everybody loves Austin right now uh, Nashville's been seeing some improving liquidity and you know those kind of secondary markets are going to be a little bit more suburban in nature and you know, that that's helping to drive those suburban cap rates down. There's a demand story behind the suburban stuff that was in play even before COVID. I mean, again, there's a lot of stuff that's happening, but I think people have to be careful to dissect what was happening before COVID and after COVID. But before COVID, it was clear just demographics favored the suburbs all of a sudden because the millennials were starting to age out of cities. They just did it en masse during the COVID era because uh, why, you know, I know at some point in the next two to three years, we're going to move to the suburbs, have kids, all the stuff that people go through in their thirties and forties, you know, that was the millennials. They were moving out of the tattoo parlor in uh, Williamsburg and moving out to the suburb. Uh, you know, that, that started to happen before COVID. It just accelerated it. And in any case, when you have a large population base of office workers live in the suburbs, tends to make suburban office stuff more popular. Yeah. So that was already going on, you know, intersect that with the uh, the secondary markets and you know that's and all the capital worldwide looking for any kind of yield. Combine all that and the suburban cap rates have come down a bit. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting to hear, you know, the younger folks kind of moving out of the city, moving to the suburbs and like you mentioned they're moving away from uh, living above the uh, tattoo shop, so when they moved to the suburban uh, areas. Jim, are they now they moving closer to the um, uh, the doctor's office where they can get these tattoos removed? <laughs> <Are they laughs> moving to suburbia. 
Uh, well, it is interesting, though. It's like even though you've had that demographic shift, uh, you know, here in New York, you know, uh, apartment rents are surging. You know, you still have people coming into the city, um, but it tends to be a younger cohort now. You know, the the millennials are giving up part of uh, the city to the Gen Zs, uh, and it just makes sense. You know, the 20-something analysts working for these firms, and people talk about office workers as, as if they're all one generic worker. You know, everybody has a big suburban home, and they're coming into the office, and why would, they, why would they do that when they have uh, that big home and they could just have a home office? But it doesn't work like that in your 20s. You know, people have, they did move home to be with their parents for a little bit because the amenities of the city were closed off to them. But, you know, after things opened up, you know, every, you know, every 20-something wants to be around other 20-something. You can't get a date living in your parents' basement. So, you know, they're all just coming back in. It's been interesting to watch in the city. It, it just it feels a lot younger to me these days. Yeah. Yeah, that's funny. Can't get a date in your parents' basement. Where do you live? My parents' basement. Uh, okay, see you later. Uh, right. And you mentioned interest rates. So, obviously, we're all seeing a lot of inflation uh, this year, especially for, uh, in the last year. Uh, in almost everything, in, in gasoline, uh, in, in, in rents, and everything else. Um, what do you think, expect for inflation moving forward? And what do you think about interest rates? And is there a correlation there? Well, the, the thing about inflation, I think people are getting some causality things wrong on inflation. Uh, there's, I've seen commentary saying that, oh, if inflation increases, we can just move our rents up, and, which is... Uh, you know, if you can just move your rents up, then why haven't you already? Uh, you know, the market determines what you can what you can uh, charge. It's a supply for space versus a demand for space. And you, know, you can tweak it a little bit. You can you can maximize it on the margins. But you know, if you have you know, large demand and limited supply, you're going to get rent increases no matter what. But that's actually driving inflation not the other way around. About a third of the consumer price index comes from you know, the cost for rental housing. And is that the, the rent increases we've seen are coming straight into the index. And the way that the, the Census Department calculates the CPI, there's a bit of a lag on the impact between when rents go up from like the spot market rents from like our, our friends over at RealPage, when those rents go up, there's a lag before that shows up in the in the CPI rents that the census collects because of a technical way of their collecting sort of in-place tenants as opposed to just the spot market rents. So it's kind of baked in in the near term that you're going to continue to see you know, some higher uh, inflation just as that that lag of that data set continues to, to come in there. And there's going to be a lot of hand-wringing over that and people thinking that, oh, well, I can buy apartments, I can buy industrial, and I can just move the rents up. Uh, but, you know, really, for a while, I think you will be able to because of the demand patterns, because of the supply patterns. But you're not just going to be able to move rents because you want to because of inflation. It's, it's all about the supply-demand balance. Yeah. Well, if the CPIs lags the residential rent increases, 
then you know there's certainly been a ton of uh, uh, rental rate increases recently uh, that seem astronomical. Uh, just seem like the largest rental increases in a lot of markets uh, than we've ever seen. So, so does that mean we should expect, uh, expect uh, CPI increases? Should we expect inflation to continue for a while? Yeah, there's there's a lot of things driving inflation. There's a whole bunch of uh, uh, discussion and disagreement, whether it's a transitory or whether it's a permanent shock. Uh, but and, and then yeah, you get ugly politics getting into it all as well, which distorts the, the analysis. Uh, in the near term, just from a very technical point of view of how the index is calculated, uh, the, it, just the rental housing costs going up this year will continue to push the calculation of that CPI index up next year. A third of the index, the biggest component of the index is that housing cost. And so it's just, it's kind of hardwired at this point that it goes up a little bit more. And what is the impact of that on potential increases in interest rates, Jim? Yeah, right now it hasn't had, it's had some sort of impact. You know, we were below 1% for a bit for the 10-year Treasury. We're not now, but we're certainly at uh, an incredibly low level relative to the long term. But you know, there's, once you start seeing some inflation, then you know, the, the Fed is going to come under more pressure to do some tightening. And at that point, that's a signal uh, to the bond markets that you know, maybe, uh, maybe higher rates are needed. And so that's, that's the... That's a challenge. You know, what will the market do? You know, if if the Fed moves and if the market behaves like it has in the past, you know, we could probably see you know additional interest rate increases. How much more? It's hard to say. What is clear to me though is that we're moving into a different environment than what most of the people we work with in the commercial real estate industry uh, have as part of their experience. You know, from if you think about like a typical seven-year investment holding period, you know, from 1986 to right around 2019, anytime you held a building and and sold it after seven years, interest rates had fallen in that uh, interim period over that seven-year holding period. And so you always had the wind at your back. Mm-hmm from the mid-80s to 2019 for any investment you had in terms of falling interest rates, which meant falling mortgage rates, falling cap rates, except for some cyclic issues on cap rates around the, and probably mortgage rates around the uh, uh, different uh, recessions we had. Nonetheless, it was, you know, made it easier for folks to just hold something, refinance after a while or sell at the, at, uh, to the next fellow who could buy it with a, a uh, lower mortgage rate. But it's a different environment now. Uh, you know, unless uh, you know, we, we go lower than uh, uh, one and a half again <laughs> over the next uh, uh, five years, uh, it's, it's, uh, there's only so much more down you could go. Mm-hmm. And if we start uh, you know, moving up, a little bit more than we have in the year over the last year, you know, from the half a percent to the one and a half, one point six percent kind of stuff we've been seeing recently. 
if uh, if you do a similar increase into the the coming year, you know, then you are definitely ahead of where we were in the near term. And over the next five to seven years, it's just the, you're going to have a stall at a minimum in terms of you know, you're not going to have the extra boost of a falling interest rate environment juicing your returns. Yeah, and let's let's talk about that, Jim. Talk with Jim Costello with Real Capital Analytics uh, about the office market. So, Jim, what does all that mean to underwriting exit cap rates uh, in the office world today? I mean, we could talk about it in every sector, I guess, but but looking at office, uh, what, what what do you say? Well, you know, I, I think that investors have to think about what is going to drive their return. If if you know, some element of the return uh, in the past was heavily influenced by capital market factors. Uh, in offices, say, in the six major metros of the United States, I calculate roughly 85% of the volatility in prices came from those capital market factors historically. So you know, if you don't have that wind at your back, you're going to have to focus on other forces to drive uh, property value, meaning you're going to really have to pay attention to income. You're going to have to do things to manage income. That's why I think there's such an interest at the moment in property technology companies, because those have a, the promise of helping you to manage your uh, revenue and expenses uh, better. And that's where you're going to have to get every nickel out of that to make up for the fact that you don't have the wind at your back on interest rate declines. Yeah, I remember being at this time in, in 07 and 08 where we had the expectation, at least as, as uh, advisors on our, on our team, of uh, looking at, well, cap rates won't be this low at exit if you're looking at exit in seven years. Um, and and, and we, we would hesitate to, to, to have an exit cap rate that was the same as going in. So uh, how, how are lenders looking at the office market today. Obviously, it depends on the on the tenant, the building, and the location. But overall, Jim, how do uh, lenders look at the office sector today? Yeah, early in the crisis, in the COVID crisis, there was a you know, there was a pullback in in the number of active lenders in the office market, uh, and, and and so that creates you know some hesitancy. You know, if if I have a building to finance. And I go to the market, and there's 15 different lenders willing to work with me. I'm going to have an easier time getting the the kind of proceeds I need. If I go to the market and there's only five lenders willing to work with me, uh, I'm going to have a more difficult time. And in the crisis, we definitely saw a reduction in that sort of lender liquidity, the number of active lenders in the office market. But it's back where it was from before the crisis. You know, the, the the folks are out there making loans today. You know, the office market uh, looks much like it did before the crisis in terms of the composition of who's doing loans. Interesting. What about markets? Uh, you mentioned uh, earlier some of the secondary or tertiary markets have been doing well. Suburban markets have been doing well. Uh, what are some cities or, or markets that when you guys look at the the results, uh, especially the the cap rates and sales velocity, where are investors uh, looking today? What's popular? Yeah, I mean, it, it's secondary markets are largely popular. Uh, the most popular office 
markets is Boston. That's not me being biased, you know, to the fact that I lived there for 20 years. <laughs> uh, it's it's about life sciences, you know. So that component of the office market is on fire because everybody understands that we have an aging populace that is going to require additional medical spending. There's tremendous investment in all kinds of new technologies. Just look at how quickly they come, came up with these vaccines and this new innovative process uh, to deal with COVID, and they're going to apply it to all sorts of other viruses. Uh, there's talk that they may be able to eradicate malaria. That still kills half a million kids in Africa every year. Think, of, think about the human capital that can be generated from, from those. Everybody wants a piece of life sciences, and Boston's got that in droves with uh, the medical complexes there. And so it's just driving up a ton of investment volume. Uh, but then, you know, some of these secondary markets that have, uh, you know, a, a, a bit of a hook in the local population, like Austin. Austin, you've got the University of Texas. He had some outflow of tech people into the industry, and it just generates a bit of a positive cycle. Not everybody can be in Austin, though. You know, the, a lot of folks have been touting Florida, and I think there's great reasons to be in Florida. I'm heading there at Christmas, <laughs> but it's a consumption economy. You know, the people just haven't done a ton of investment in sort of the education system and building the infrastructure of human capital to to uh, bring workers in. Uh, I think there's some interesting things happening in Miami. Around you know, Miami's always been sort of the financial hub for Latin America. And, you know, there's some infrastructure there that people can build on, um, particularly, you know, to the extent it really takes off. Some of the small crypto firms could probably work well in a place like that relative to all the capital coming in from Latin America. Uh, that might work well with some of the folks and their restrictions that they face. Um, but, you know, it's, it's hard to replicate. You know, you can't just say, oh, well, let's close New York and move everybody to Florida. It's just, it just can't happen. And speaking of New York, you're there in the city. Um, what's the office market there like? And, and how many of these office tenants that have leases are actually utilizing the space? Yeah, the, the, you know, the Manhattan office market, it's, it's far less liquid today than it has been over the long term. It just uh, When we score liquidity across uh, global office markets, Traditionally, Manhattan was the most liquid market worldwide, uh, much less so today. You know, buyers and sellers are still far apart on where they want to be and because you know, people are not back in the office fully. And so if I'm a buyer, I am going to price in some of that uncertainty around the return to the office. You know, why should I you know, be the one paying for the fact that uh, you know, people don't want to come back to the office? So I'm going to put into uh, any bid I make, you know, the worst case scenario, just to cover myself. But beyond that, I think there's a bigger issue. Uh, again, 85% of the price changes over time are capital market factors. Only 15% is rent and fundamentals. And that's, that's, you know, rent is really what you're talking about with tenants coming back. Those capital market factors are bigger. And New York faces a much bigger issue, I think, on the capital market side. We have local law 97 requiring buildings to move towards net zero carbon emissions. And I think that's you know, uh, a laudable goal, but there's, there's a cost associated with that. And that means additional CapEx. Uh, so you have an office building, 
and you've got a boiler you have to provide heat during winter, you've got to change out the boiler to an all-electric boiler, which is going to be more expensive to operate, number one, but then that's a lot of CapEx at once. And if you know we don't have it done by a certain time, there's different fees, uh, fines you have to pay, which is just going to increase the operating cost of running an asset. So you know there are some structural changes coming into this market with regard to the the you know, financial viability of operating an office building. Uh, plus, you know some of the tendencies. From the higher quality tenants in, in the tech world, you know, they're starting. It's it's clear looking at the the stock data, uh, meaning the public equity market data from uh, um, our parent company MSCI. It's clear that some of them are being rewarded for you know the environmental friendliness of their operations. So if I'm a tech tenant, I want to be in an environmentally friendly building. So you know the the lower quality buildings that can't move to net zero carbon emissions, you know, they're going to have to pay some heavier fines. Maybe they get some lower quality tenants. And eventually, over a 20-year period, they'll start trading out at the bottom of the market, almost like Class B and C malls from 20 years ago. Mm. Uh, but I think that capital expender issue is going to be a big challenge for some older office buildings. You can't just put the money. They don't have enough income to justify putting in new energy-efficient windows, new all-electric systems. And uh, so I think there's really going to be a bifurcation of the office market here moving forward. Uh, perversely, you know, we might see a reduction in the number of office workers if some of the worst-case scenarios come through on, on uh, uh, you know, what happens next with return to the office. But perversely, we could end up with a shortage of office space because of that bifurcation. Maybe there's not enough of the high-quality space that's energy efficient. So the it, it just it screams for developers build more stuff like one Vanderbilt. Mm -hmm. That's interesting, Jim. What about uh, timing for demand? You know, a lot of markets have a lot of sublease space. Obviously, a lot of tenants are are not utilizing uh, their space. Uh, we're starting to see some uh, activity, more leasing activity. Some markets are kind of leveling off and, and uh, having some positive absorption. What would you say today, here we are at the end of 2021, um, would be the timing for kind of an increased tenant demand in office space? Yeah, you know, uh, the, thing about, the thing about sublease space and tenant demand, the, uh, you know, I don't know what's going to happen next in terms of the job market and how many people come back to the office. But one thing that is clear you know, we went through this work-from-home experiment. And I think it changes the way corporations think about their use of space. If a company was open in an office and they had plans for, for growth over a five- to ten-year period, you know, based on how, how much growth they thought they would have, they might lease a little more space than they needed in the near term. So they'd have uh, a cushion to grow into. And that's what a lot of the sublease space is. It's people trying to unload some of that cushion. But you know, when things, let's say things go back to some sort of normal, with we see a reliable pattern of people coming back to the office, firms don't have to bank as much space for future expansion as they used to, because you know they've seen that okay, we if we if we have some excess folks, uh, we 
can do a little bit more work from home for a while. And then once you know we get through that, then we can just move everybody into a new space that fits all our current needs. So I, I, it, it just screams to me that firms are going to behave differently. They've gone through this. You know, the, the incentives they had to bank additional space have kind of fallen by the wayside in this, in this crisis. And, and so that, that's the thing I'd be looking for. You know, some of that sublet space is being withdrawn from the market now because firms are, on the one hand, some firms are getting people back and they, they, they need that. But, you know, it just, it just screams to me that firms may not have to have leases that are as big moving forward because they've got another option to to deal with that uncertainty besides taking on a little bit more space than they currently need. Yeah. And, of course, uh, when companies feel it's safe uh, and COVID is no longer a danger, um, the demand will really increase. Here we are at the end of 2021 again. And what would, yeah, I guess, it, you know, it all factors in uh, when demand comes back stronger on COVID, but from what you see today, where we are today at the end of 2021, what would you think would be an increase in demand again in office usage and, and, and tenant demand? Is it next year? Is it 2022, 23, 24? What would you bank on or, or estimate? Yeah, you know, I, I just can't speculate on that. It's <laughs> not something that, uh, you know, we don't publish anything on that. We don't publish much on the tenant demand side. But there's still just so much uncertainty around, you know, what happens next and what type of business functions uh, require people coming together. You know, there 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 is a potential that you know, some functions just never come back. Uh, so, you know, to the extent that people are coming back to the office, it's going to be for the functions that uh, you know, reward human capital. And a lot of uh, uh, you know, very you know, tight integration between teams, um, things that are more nuanced and harder to do over remote uh, type set settings. Uh, so, how much of that function by location? That's probably going to determine how much people come back. Um, and it's, uh, it's it's still kind of unclear. Yeah. And that's why the office market in places like Manhattan is still kind of hung because, well, again, if I'm a buyer, I, I, I want to price in the worst case scenario. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's, it's big numbers in Manhattan. If I, if I get it wrong on a $15 million uh, suburban office building, you know, outside of, uh, you know, a, a secondary or tertiary market in Tennessee or Kentucky, it's less of a, it's less of a risk. Right. But talking about $2 billion office asset in uh, Midtown, I don't know, uh, that's some real numbers. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And it uh, really brings back to, you know, underwriting being really dependent on each asset and the tenants in each asset, what industry they're in. Uh, so, uh, yeah, talk to your advisor on any properties that you're buying or selling. And, you know, my advice to uh, tenants today is uh, get out there and get some good deals while you can, uh, whether it's the purchase or, or lease, uh, and secure good space. Because I think to be competitive as when it becomes uh, we all feel safe to be around each other in an office environment, uh, that to be competitive, you're going to want uh, great space, uh, as, as Jim said, that's, that's, that's healthy. Uh, that's, that's class A, that, that makes office an asset 
for your business and your uh, and your and your tenants and your, your employees again. Well, Jim, what would you leave our office off, your, our audience to think about related to office uh, moving forward? Think about human capital. That's really what it's about. You know, the, there's you know, the there's a lot of uh, discussion around what happens next with the office, but the extent it's needed, it's to you know, bring high performers together, and that's that's really the the, the role it has played in areas where it's been successful. Uh, so to the extent it is rewarded like that moving forward, that's where it's coming from. Yeah. All right. Well, good point. And, you know, and I, I would leave the audience that, hey, uh, turnover and production uh, and is a lot more expensive than office space. Uh, make your office space an asset for your employees and, and your company. Jim, sir, thank you for joining us again. Great information as usual. Yeah, always glad to chat. All right. Thanks, Jim. If you'd like more information uh, from RC Analytics, check out their website. It's rcanalytics.com. And thank you for joining us around the world and around the country. Please let us know uh, what you think. If you have comments, you have questions, you have suggestions, you're welcome to reach out to me personally. My email is michael at com. Well, till next week, be sure that you always lead, learn, and laugh and join us for America's Commercial Real Estate Show. America's Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Buxton. Take leasing site selection and due diligence to the next level. Make the right decisions with on-demand mobile data. Visit buxtonco.com. By Bull Realty. For proven commercial real estate asset and occupancy solutions, contact me. My email is michael at bullrealty.com. By Commercial Agent Success, expert-level commercial real estate broker training, Cloud Access 1, up to 21 one-hour videos. Visit commercialagentsuccess.com. Thank you for reviewing, subscribing, and sharing America's commercial real estate show.